This is Restless. Welcome back to Restless, a postmortem on the young, restless, and reformed. I am your host, Matt, joined by Pastor Michael. And and maybe instead of being a postmortem on the YRR, soon we will be a discussion of Anglicanism <laughs> and <laughs> evangelicalism. It will have to be as all of the uh, YRR seem to be gravitating in that direction. Maybe that's not true. That seems like a bit of an overstatement, but we'll find out, I guess. It will admittedly be difficult for me who knows nothing about Anglicanism. Yeah, that's, that's basically how I feel. <laughs> and that is why we are happy to have a guest with us tonight who knows at least more than we do. We are happy to be joined by Pastor Philip Ryan. He is a PCA pastor. Uh, Philip, welcome to Restless. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Matt and Michael, for having me. Yeah, we are glad to have you. We are here to talk. We are here to start a conversation that will likely be ongoing in some ways about, yeah, the, I don't know if we want to call it the rise of Anglicanism. There's no <laughs> fall yet, but it's at least on the rise. Right. Yeah, no, it seems like uh, pretty high profile people lately, um, but even just in smaller amounts, there seems to be a move, um, whether that be from uh, Presbyterianism, I see it in the PCA uh, for sure, uh, but also now more widely in kind of the circles we talk about. You've seen uh, recently Russell Moore, uh, Beth Moore, uh, no relation. I don't know. Actually, I don't know if there is. <laughs> Ray Ortland. I don't think there are Ray Ortland. Yeah, I, uh, I don't think there is. <laughs> yeah, no. I, so we've seen these these moves anyway of pretty big names uh, in these kinds of circles that we deal with with New Calvinism, and so um, we we wanted to figure out what's going on. Right. <laughs> what is this? What? Why is this happening? And and especially being who we are. I mean, so so we are very much in the Midwest. Um, I there, mean, Anglicanism is not big in Wisconsin. There's not, an, there's not an Anglican <laughs> within 500 miles of us. <laughs> yes. You have to go to Chicago for those. But that's why we're glad Philip's here. Philip, will you tell the audience a little bit about yourself um, and maybe a little why we're we're talking to you tonight? Yeah. Um, well, again, I'm glad to be here. Uh, so I am pastor of Marion Presbyterian Church, which is in Marion, Alabama. Okay, if you've never heard of it, it's a small town in the uh, the Black Belt region of West Alabama. Uh, I'm bivocational, so I actually live in Tuscaloosa, which is a metropolis uh, mm -hmm. for, for the region. Yeah, and uh, I've been I did pulpit supply there for two years, and then I was installed and ordained there as their pastor in uh, 2020. And uh, married for over a decade, and got two beautiful little girls. And uh, we're talking today because you said on Twitter, would anybody be interested in talking about Anglicanism? And I said, yeah, I've, I've served in a, an Episcopal church for a year and uh, moved in the process of ordination there. And then we left and came back to the PCA. You're right. like, That'll work. That is a good place to start. Yep. So you were not. So when you say you were in the process of ordination uh, for the Episcopal church, um, was you were not were you raised um, in Episcopalianism or Anglicanism? Uh, so no, but sort of. So my, okay. I was raised, uh, and I forget what podcast which one of you said it, but I was actually raised in an E free church. Okay, yeah. And my parents divorced, and my mom went to my grandparents' church, which was a Pentecostal Assemblies of God church. Mm. That's what I was really formed in. I went to undergrad at AG. Christian college in Missouri. Um, but my grandmother was raised Episcopalian and so was the whole family. And so she always told me like her ideal church would be a charismatic Episcopal church. Huh. Wow. And those actually existed. Uh, a guy named Dennis Bennett in the seventies when the charismatic movie was really sweeping across the church, regardless of denomination, almost he had this experience of baptism of the Holy spirit with speaking tongues and then he announced very boldly to his Episcopal church that uh, he's had that experience and they kicked him out. <laughs> um, and he landed at another church, Episcopal church, and started preaching gifts and things like that. So huh. it was kind of in the waters. I actually have, uh, I don't have many Anglican books anymore. We can talk about that later. But uh, this is my grandma's uh, Book of Common Prayer, the 1928 edition. 
Wow. So it's very well worn, but she gave it to me when she thought I was going to become an Episcopal priest. Hmm. Uh, I don't have the heart to give it back to her. It's mine yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> so. so so, we need to start here with an explain it to me like I'm five. What is the difference between Anglicanism and Episcopalianism? Yeah, uh, so there's no difference in, okay. in, 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 in one way. I mean, the Anglican church is just, uh, the Anglican communion is the worldwide churches that um, that are in relationship with the uh, uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, um, who's kind of that the de facto head of the Anglican community. He doesn't nowhere near the same like power like the Pope has, but he does. He is the representative of the communion. So when they have big bishops conferences, which I think they're getting ready for one where they summon in like all the bishops from the world. It's, it's the Archbishop of Canterbury who calls for that type of, of meeting. Um, so that's, you know, there's Anglican churches in Uganda, uh, in Southeast Asia, all over the world. The Episcopal church it, in the United States was, it used to be called the Protestant Episcopal church. And just like Presbyterians, it's mainly just giving a nod to the way they structure their church government, right? They, they're Episcopalian, they're Episcopos, they have a bishop who oversees mm -hmm. other shepherds. Uh, when the conservatives got kind of fed up with the Episcopal church in the early 2000s, after a couple of failed um, discipline cases of like bishops in the United States, like Gene Robinson, who was an openly gay bishop who was ordained to the office, despite like unanimous disapproval, the rest of the Anglican communion, the Episcopal church went ahead with that. And that really heightened the urgency. And so there was a split uh, led by Robert Duncan, who was the Bishop of Pittsburgh um, and several other like-minded uh, churches. So there was a split of conservatives that formed and they needed to name it something, but they can't name it Episcopal. So we can use Anglican. So they formed the Anglican Church of North America. And this is the, what, and this is the denomination when we talk about these evangelicals, they are going to the- They're going the yeah, they're going to ACNA. There used to be uh, early on, like some African bishops were doing reverse missionary work pretty much and uh, ordaining bishops. There was something like the uh, uh, Anglican Mission in America, AMIA, um, that had oversight with bishops from, from Africa. And then there's, there's also the Reformed Episcopal Church, which split in the 1800s in a response to the uh, Anglo-Catholic movement, the, the Oxford movement, the high church that was kind of sweeping through. All of those, when the ACNA was formed, all of them came kind of under that umbrella. Okay. Um, and that's, I don't know too much about that because I ended up in the Episcopal church, but they, there's their own complications going on of how that's playing out as they keep maturing as a denomination. Interesting. And like most church communions, the, the based churches are the ones in Africa, it seems. They're, they're the ones, yeah. They're, they're not putting up with any shenanigans. <laughs> yeah. so, so tell us a little bit how you how you came to be, you know, on the track to ordination um, in the Episcopal Church. Yeah, so that, this is a, probably one of the weirdest stories. Um, so I <laughs> went to, to, to back it up and, you know, when you talk about the Young Restless Reform Movement, and when you start documenting movements, you realize that stuff was going on way earlier. Um, so I was at uh, Covenant Seminary from 2010 to 14. And uh, while I was there, there was a couple of ACNA guys. Uh, because, again, there wasn't too many schools they could go to. You can't go to an Episcopal Seminary. There's only like two semi-conservative ones left. So anyways, uh, we had a couple there. And then uh, when I was getting ready to graduate, there was a couple of guys a year or two behind me um, who started attending a conservative Episcopal church in St. Louis. And uh, anyways, fast forward, I was having, I was looking for a call. I was finishing up an internship at a, a PCA church in Atlanta and uh, nothing, I wasn't getting a call. The internship was in, ending. I, I needed a job. Um, I, I only have all my degrees are Bible degrees. So, uh, I remembered some friends were going Anglican. I was like, I mean, I could do that. They're, you know, just high church Presbyterians. Right. <laughs> and, uh, I called one guy that I, that I knew that went in and we're talking and I said, you went Anglican. Tell me about that. And he stops me. He's like, I went Anglican ish. He's like, I actually joined the Episcopal church. And I was like, okay. 
that's the end of our conversation because that's <laughs> I'm not doing that. It's like that that's that's too far. And he goes, no, 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 no. You got to hear me out. And this will have a young restless reform connection too. There are actually eight bishops in the Episcopal Church. Now there's seven because one of them just got disciplined that are conservative, their whole diocese too. Mm-hmm. And they're called the communion partners. And they are kind of, they've worked out this whole structure and they're trying to actively ordain evangelicals into the Episcopal church and kind hey, of- I've like, heard of this. Yeah, I've actually, I've heard actually of this? heard of this. Fight, fighting back a little bit. I, yeah, like, I like I mean, it. This is like Machen, right? I mean, fighting yeah, yeah. Is going this, down. The... this is great. Uh, and so he had me speak um, to the director of vocations, uh, who's a guy named Justin Holcomb. Yep, and this is why I've I've heard this of this. I've heard of it, yeah. so, and that's a and that's a young restless reform thing. Very much uh-huh. work for Mark Driscoll. Right, that's right, everybody. He came out of Driscoll's church, and he wrote a famous book on handling abuse in the church with his wife. And I mean, I think he's still an Episcopal yep. priest. He's still the director and, of vocations, and he is an adjunct professor at Reformed Theological Seminary. Um, yeah. Huh. Wow, great guy. He's got some of the most crazy ministry stories I've ever heard. Um, but yeah, so he's, he's an Episcopal priest. Uh, he's the director of our canon, canon of vocations. And I spoke to him and Justin is convincing. So um, he's telling me, uh, you know, kind of the, uh, the diocese he was at was the diocese of central Florida. The Bishop is uh, Greg Brewer and uh, solid evangelical credentials for Greg, uh, the Bishop there. And Justin was explaining hit their vision of what it would look like to come on and do ministry in the Episcopal church and certain advantages um, that mainly in the ways of support, like, you know, in, and I think as pastors, you know, we kind of experienced this, you know, who pastors us? Like, who do we mm-hmm. turn to when we need a pastor? Um, that, comp- that gets complicated in ministry. And so the bishop is kind of put forward as the chief shepherd of the under shepherds of a, of a diocese. And, mm. um, and it is very, very connectional. And so it, you know, it sounded really good. And one of the things he phrased it was uh, if you're kind of progressive for the PCA, you'll fit perfectly in the evangelical Episcopalian world. And, <laughs> and at that point in time, I would probably say I was, so I was like, all right, sure. This, this will be a good fit. Sure. Yeah. My wife said absolutely no. Oh, <laughs> what I told her. Um, I was like, you know, we do, we're kind of running out of options. And so um, what was her objection? If you don't mind telling us. My wife was raised Southern Baptist. Presbyterian is about far. Catholic. Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's not Episcopal. Yeah, yeah. Like that's like, whoa, that's that's a bridge too far. Yep. Uh, Understandable. But anyways, we got we got hooked up with, uh, you know, what the ordination process would look like. They wanted us to move to the diocese of central Florida and then kind of be put on pause. Cause you still like, we understand our book of church order. You can't just say, Hey, I want to be a pastor. Yeah. doesn't um, just start. Yeah. Yeah. There's still a process and they could accelerate it, but you still had to play by the rules. So they came up with, um, there is a church called Christ church in Valdosta, Georgia. We were living in Atlanta at the time. Um, and the pastor also was kind of evangelical-ish, uh, solid credentials from like Trinity Episcopal School of Ministry, which is an evangelical Episcopal seminary. Um, and so he needed a college pastor of like, or, yeah, pastor of college and youth. Um, and so we got hooked up with him and we agreed to take this position. So then we had to go be confirmed in the Episcopal Church, which means we had to fly to Orlando and have confirmation that's when we first met the the bishop and he was he was great um but this is funny so like what is confirmation i have no (laughs) idea i grew up in a council do you guys know what confirmation is (laughs) oh well only only with some experience with lutherans but that's about it i don't know if it's the same i don't know how it overlaps so you know it's it's kind of confirming that you're like you know you're identifying as a Christian, you're professing mm-hmm. faith, you know, something along those lines. It's usually like, I did a confirmation class once I was in the Episcopal church and it was all pretty much like eighth graders, seventh graders, yeah. Yeah. Uh, a few adults. And, uh, but anyways, he, he anoints you, the Bishop anoints you with oil as part of this. Mm-hmm. So he's talking to us about the process. And my wife who had been kind of adamant about not doing this and was going along cause she was loving me and being you know, my helpmate and everything. 
Yeah. Uh, the bishop's telling us what he's going to do. I'll anoint you with oil, do this, yeah. that. We'll say a few prayers. And he goes, and then I'll give you a little slap on the face. And my wife goes, okay. And I'm like, what? Okay, why, why are you slapping me? He goes, no, it's, it's not really a slap. It's a, it's a tap, but it's a, it's a ritual sign of like, we're going to make it stick. And wow. it really was. <laughs> it really was just like a pat on the cheek. Yeah. Still, I was like, you're gonna like, if I just say I'm going to give you a pat on the cheek, don't say you're going to slap me. <laughs> I, I'm pretty speechless, though, that that uh, I, I was, I, I, I always <laughs> like to think of myself as fairly high church. And then I hear like actual explanations of like added rituals. And I'm like, nah, no, you're no, not. No, no, no. <laughs> Never heard of the Holy slap. Yeah. No. Not either. I, yeah. Wow. So it, it cracked me up. She, and I mean, she went along with it. We went along with it. Uh, it was great. And so um, that was like kind of the fast track. Uh, once I got like doing ministry stuff, there was a bit of an issue because I was in the process of ordination in one diocese but serving in another mm. serving in the diocese of Georgia. Um, and so they had to like work out how that was going to look, um, who I was reporting to. Uh, and one of the things that became kind of a, a, a hitch early on was much like when a guy comes under care, he needs the approval of the session first. Um, they still needed that from the church I'm serving at. And so I don't know these people. Like I get there I think I was there for like two months and they formed the nominating committee. Um, and then I met with them for a few weeks to discuss like what it was going to look like to, to move forward in ordination. Um, and I, I hit a road bump. It, it wasn't promised me that this would be a rubber stamp, but it kind of felt like it was going to be. Uh, well, the church decided it wasn't going to be a rubber stamp. So they, they didn't approve that. Mm. Um, and one of the reasons they gave which was fascinating uh, was I was told from one of the members and I loved all the people there, but and he, he was very sincere in this because he was Episcopalian. He said, you need to experience a full church calendar year. He's like, mm -hmm. you need to experience the, uh, the, the pat, the passage from, you know, advent of celebration and hope into the morning of Lent into the joy of Easter and experience like, the uh, tenebrae service where they strip everything off the altar bare, um, where, you know, changing of vestments, changing of church colors, like all of this is a huge deal in the Episcopal church. Yeah. And I didn't appreciate that at the time. So I actually kind of took it as I'm disappointed, but like, I've got a lot to learn. Hmm. Um, so that, that was what led to the ordination. That's what I mean when I was doing the ordination process, I was going through those loopholes or not loopholes yeah, but those yeah. steps yep so so while you were in this process while you were um starting to serve in this church so what did you what did you appreciate about what it, what did you find you appreciated about the episcopalian church um or the or the way they practiced christianity obviously we're talking about the evangelical sides right you know the evangelical yeah side of it. um yeah uh, so the, I think the thing that we, the, one of the things we appreciated um, the most was probably that you had a uniform church service. So every Episcopal church has to use the book of church, uh, see it, book of common prayer. They've <laughs> got to use um, the 1979 book of common prayer. Some of them get permission to still use the 1928 um, and there's, reasons for one why they may want to do that um but yeah if you're going to be just a run-of-the-mill episcopal church you got to use the prayer book so you have uh two eucharist services right one which is uh, a little bit more like uh, older language some richer prayers um, a little bit more archaic language too um, and the service for that is just said they, it, it, there's no music or singing or anything like that in right two, the language is updated. There's a bit more of kind of the, the liturgical movement stuff, a bit more emphasis on like um, talking about more of a, of a real presence kind of at the communion itself. Um, and then there's music. So you have to use that, but it does provide stability. So whether you're at what they call like a low church, which is where I served, you know, the pastor was in the bare minimum of vestments for communion. 
um, he did the bare minimum amount of gestures that you could kind of get away with. He was low. Um, from that to high Catholic, everyone's coming in decked out. There's incense everywhere, chanting, bells, all of that. It's still fundamentally the same service. And so we kind of appreciate that because you could go anywhere and know what to expect. Like we can't even say that in the PCA. Right, right. Not even close. So uh, that, that was a big one. One that I actually came to not actually not appreciate so much the longer I stayed in. Um, but one thing that we do miss was the, the bodily emphasis, the embodied part of the worship. So not so much kneeling for communion. We never got used to that. Um, and I actually didn't do that because I was always serving communion. Um, we can get to this, but like what Beth Moore was the videotape of her. So, uh, you know, that's what I was doing from like she did your job. She did. <laughs> yeah, she did. She was just doing her job anyways. Um, but the, the kneeling part of it to receive communion that not so much, but like we, you would kneel for the confession of sin. Mm. And I think there is something, I mean, for everybody, the priest included, he's not above you. He's got a kneeler that he kneels at. And you are all submitting and confessing your sins before a holy God. I mean, that part, we could maybe we could do that a little bit yeah. in the yeah. in our circles. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, having maybe more of a, uh, an emphasis in that way. What do you see? Um, and you know, I mean, we we can keep going here, but as long as you brought it up, um, liturgically, so you have that like the embodied emphasis. Are there other things about uh, whether it be the, you know, the church calendar, which seems to me anyway, to be like growing in popularity, whether it be in evangelical circles or in, you know, uh, our kind of Presbyterian circles, um, which historically obviously is like, whoa, what? <laughs> like, that's weird uh, yeah. for Presbyterianism. But what, uh, whether it be the church calendar or other elements of the liturgy, what are the things that you, uh, you know, found that you still, you know, uh, find as something that you appreciate? Um, not so much. <laughs> I, I guess this could be part of, I, I thought I would appreciate the church calendar more. Uh -huh. um, I went in there actually appreciating it more. Yeah. I left appreciating it less. Hmm. Um, Interesting. I, I think one of the things that uh, I guess I would say that, I, that I do miss, um, not so much, uh, I guess it would play into the, the, the liturgy, but there, at least for when it came to coming to the table um, and the, the prayers that they would have, they were, we, you knew what to expect, but they were very, they are rich and deep. And mm. I would say for the most part, especially the right one service, which taps into Kramer's own kind of Eucharistic uh, communion prayers. I think those are rich and could be beneficial to, for, to have in your liturgy so like a, a high church presbyterian that's tapping into you know liturgies from calvin or something like that that are just that have these deep prayers like we could use a little bit more of that and, and i guess like what terry johnson talks about in his leading worship book like having a lot more mindfulness going into those types of parts of worship mm. so like you know we're big on kind of contemporary or extemporaneous moments of prayer which is good I missed that when I was in the Episcopal church, because you don't get that. You, everything's always rigid. We could probably use a little bit more thoughtfulness into like the prayer of the people is what they call it. We would consider our pastoral prayer. Yeah. Um, and one thing, actually, I would, I, I would say that I've, I've adopted it. When I do the pastoral prayer, I always pray and name politicians. And that's something in the liturgy. And it was really telling during the 2016 election, which is when I was there, you know, we were praying for Barack Obama every Sunday. I was in a very politically diverse church. I mean, I had a lot of people that were not happy with him. And you know, yet they prayed for him every Sunday. And then when Donald Trump became president, you know, and a whole other sub, you know, group of people now were not happy, but they still prayed for him because yeah, he's the president. You know, we that emphasis of you know honoring those that God has placed over us, while actually, you know maybe praying for their salvation. I and mean, most of us mm -hmm. don't even think about that when we're gathered to, to worship. So that would be something good. I keep. So what, uh, so yeah, before we get to the kind of the issue at hand, the, 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 the way, the way this issue is a little bit bigger than uh, Pastor Phillip's own life and story. Um, what, what, 
what set of circumstances or what caused you to end up, I don't know, not completing your ordination um, yeah. in the Episcopal Church and uh, becoming a PCA minister? Um, yeah, so there are a couple other more personal factors that led to that, but, but sure. church-wise, um, that probably would have ended up being a problem anyways. Um, first, it had to do with... Uh, it was too big of a culture shock, right? If you're going from Baptist Presbyterian worship to yes. even low church is high, high church for someone coming from our background in the Episcopal church uh, or the Anglican church for that matter. And it was a lot to get used to. Hmm. Um, one of the things you had to hold intention, and, and this was from a ministry perspective, these were the things that were, were going to become issues. Um, I would have had to share in ministry with people before we get to big social, cultural, theological issues that had wildly different interpretations of what's happening in communion. Hmm. So, uh, you know, the Episcopal Church is very, they have high Catholic tendencies and then they've got low church tendencies. No one's a memorialist like a like Baptist would be or anything like that. Um, but some, you know, believe pretty much almost in some form of transubstantiation or consubstantiation and to give an example, I was at a, a, a youth retreat camp thing, um, and they have to have a chapel service. So there's always a priest kind of on charge. Uh, it was a woman priest. She was great, about my age, really charismatic and exciting. Um, but we're setting up for the worship service. So we're gathering the you know the wafers, which you call the hosts and everything, and we're gathering all that up. And one of the acolytes or something accidentally knocked it over, and she didn't get mad or anything, but. We hadn't done anything yet. The service hadn't started. We're just preparing. And she's like, oh, you're dropping Jesus. As if the bread itself, before she even prayed for it. Right. No consecration even. Yeah, was Jesus. And then she like, she kind of joked, well, he's not, it's, he's not there yet. Wow. And uh, sure. like, when yeah. it comes to, like, when we talk about diversity of, of worship and the PCA, we're pretty united about what actually happens in communion, right? That would yeah. probably be something that would get a, a hard check or follow-ups on a floor exam. If an, right. A candidate came forward and was like, yeah, he's kind of in with, under, around right. the, 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 the elements of the Lord's Supper. Right. I'd be concerned if someone dropped Jesus in our church, right? That would yeah, be... That'd, that'd be an issue. Um, and that includes when they drink the wine uh, for service. So that wine now is Christ's blood so the only way to get rid of christ's blood is to actually consume it or you have to pour it some of them have um some of them have spots where you can actually pour kind of down a sink that leads out into the ground um or they'll go out and, and pour it in the ground um but it has to be it can't just be tossed away it can't be poured down the sink yeah uh, because it's christ's own blood uh so yeah the, the, some of those kind of things were becoming tension sure. and then you know the reality of doing ministry with uh not just what we're debating in gay pastors but like openly gay pastors that are married to other men or married to other women if they're women uh transgender pastors now uh and and actually you know doing you're expected to do ministry with them in the episcopal church the anglican church is not going to have that issue but in the episcopal church yeah. while trying to be evangelical it's still be expected that you do something with these people how do so how do the i mean how do the evangelical you know priests and bishops try to work that out that just it, it just sounds to me like that just can't happen right like that that's how it sounds to me but like how do they try to make that work so one of the things they started to try to do um this is playing out in different ways one of the things they try to do is even though you may be in a diocese of a bishop maybe you just have such issues with that bishop as the, the church that you could request oversight from another bishop. So the Bishop of Central Florida had oversight of a church in Kentucky um, mm. that was decidedly evangelical. Um, and then, uh, and kind of the reverse way too. So um, there was a bishop, his name is Bishop Love, great name. He was the Bishop of the Diocese of Albany, which was very, is very, very conservative. Um, but they have a few very liberal churches. So what are they supposed to do? Because he wouldn't allow uh, homosexual marriages to take place. Um, and he was actually disciplined for it in 2018 and left the Episcopal church. Oh. Uh, 
So he was disciplined for it because they've revised, they're revising the liturgies of the church. So now, then they were saying he couldn't, you know, outright do it. But one of the ways they were doing this or getting around it was um, very liberal churches and conservative dioceses could ask for a very liberal bishop to oversee. Mm-hmm. Their so that's kind of how they get around it. But it's just, it sounds untenable because it is. Yeah. yeah. This, this is a pretty hard sell. So tell me what then is the, what is the attraction? Why is why is soon half of TGC going to be Anglican? And why is Ray Ortland already Anglican? And what what's what is this? What's behind this kind of new, this seemingly new movement? And now when I meet people on Twitter or online, it feels like a bunch of them are suddenly Anglican. Yeah. So I mean, all those people moved to the ACNA. And it's like it is very similar. So I think I can still speak to some of it. And, and I would say for some people, it's, um, you know, we want this que- evangelicalism is just like new as a movement. I mean, we can say our uh, our beliefs are very old. I mean, they're biblical, but like the movement itself is historically young. Um, I think you saw that in some ways with the Young Restless Reform Movement of trying to get back to the old guys. So, you know, we went back to you know, the, the 1500s with the Reformation and we're reading Martin Luther and we're reading Calvin and great. I think the, the Anglican cell is, even though it came around <laughs> the time of Reformation, its claim is not that, right? It, it is the whole, you know, it's a holy Catholic apostolic church. We are actually, I mean, there were Christians in England before the Reformation. That's the lineage we kind of go back to. So they, they have a, a good claim that we're, you know, an even more ancient church. And so that kind of tags into the, the, the worship stuff of the ancient modern uh, worship movement that, you've, you know, like Robert Weber's stuff. Um, fun fact, too, uh, the dean of the cathedral in the Central Florida Diocese is a guy named Reggie Kidd, who was a PCA pastor and is now the dean of, of that cathedral that happened way before all this uh too so i think some of it is this longing for even more connection to history um i think it's a response to the kind of marketing big production uh that we have in worship right now where you know where it's entertainment mm-hmm. yeah the, the episcopal anglican liturgical it's not really entertaining. I mean, it's, it's, it, it, it is often solemn. There's an order to it. Um, so it is kind of enchanting that way. It can make you feel like you're doing something really holy. Hmm. And then I think, especially with people, especially with people like probably Beth Moore, it can promise a grass is greener view of women. Hmm. What, so what about the, ACNA, which is obviously not like the Episcopal Church. They have views on humanity that accord with, I don't know, common Reality, sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe yeah. Or, or closer. What is it? Yeah. What for Beth Moore, right? Leaving, leaving the Southern Baptist Convention. What about the ACNA? What is the greener pastures of um, roles for women or views of women that? Well, so you have like, I mean, I'm sure you guys saw Twitter losing its mind over Tish Warren's New York time piece where she dared to challenge people to like go back to church and right. Um, it's a crazy thought. I know, but, it's you know it's wild, but she was a, you know, she's a woman priest. And uh, so there's this view that, you know, they've got women priests. So, you know, women, it has to be better for women in Anglicanism. There's a better appreciation, but not every diocese ordains women in the ACNA. It's up to the bishop. Uh, that's in their constitution. And it's also in the constitution that they can't be bishops. Mm. So the highest office is still out of bounds. Um, and I, I mean, I think there's that view, though, that if women are participating, then they'll be more seen, more heard, appreciated. Maybe we'll have less instances of, of sexism or even less instances of, you know, things like you know, a sex scandal. Right. But the ACNA just had to depose like three bishops in the past couple of years over those things. Failure to handle sex scandals, pornography use. Um, so, I mean, obviously we're still sinners. 
mm-hmm. that's not gonna that that's not gonna be the, the thing that that's gonna save us as if you know a woman's now serving as a priest or it's not gonna be right. bad for women. And I'm not saying they are bad to women in the ACNA, but it's just it's clearly not solving all the problems yeah. that egalitarianism promises. Yeah. So I'm I'll ask this question because it's gonna be winsome. Uh <laughs> In the, in the, even in the ACNA, obviously in the Episcopal church, this is probably true. Um, can you just believe anything? Because when I see people like arguing for Anglicanism, right, I see some people, right, I think, and yeah. it's probably these two groups that are going there for different reasons, right? These people, there are guys, they're arguing like, we need to literally bring back Christendom. We need a Christian state and everyone not Anglican is a pansy because you don't, you, you've tried to separate these things. And then I don't, and I'm like, I don't see any similarity between you and Beth Moore. And you're both telling me or Ray Ortland to throw another, you know, a, a, a seemingly third person in there. I, I don't, I do not understand the, the connection between these things. And so that's why, that's why I'm asking. Right. Yeah. So I was in preparing for this. I was like, I should check in on the ACNA and see how they're doing. Sure. Um, and so they're facing so many of the same issues that the PCA is. Um, and some of it still comes from, I wouldn't say the Young Restless Reform Movement, but it comes from evangelicals coming into denomination and a church tradition and messing everything up. <laughs> uh, so there is a bishop. He, he wrote a book called Accidental, Accidentally Anglican. His name's Todd Hunter. Uh hmm big guy for the vineyard movement, Pentecostal uh, background, charismatic. Um, He became a bishop with no experience in Anglicanism whatsoever. Mm. But he had the credentials of church planning, ministry success. Uh, He wanted to be Anglican. And this was at the time when they were kind of starting. So they made him a bishop. He's got a diocese, uh, church for the sake of others. They call it C4SO or something like that. Um, But they're having to have like a convocation of the bishops to figure out what to do with this diocese because they're very, very in favor of side B. Um, mm-hmm. There's a big dust up about that. The bishops wrote a kind of a homo, uh, human sexuality report mm-hmm. and it aggravated a lot of people. And there was a kind of a response to it from a side B perspective and, and it's created consternation there. And he was one of the bishops that kind of responded to, his other brothers saying, eh, you know, we should just get along with this, this side B way of, of talking about human sexuality and, and being a gay Christian. Um, and then also woke elements and CRT type stuff. And so it was interesting because I, you know, I wanted to check in on them. I'm like, I could be reading a PCA blog. Yeah, right. On, on this. And it's for a lot of the same, it's the same stuff of we want to be winsome, missional, we need to reach people. And the way we do it is to less adhere to like the traditions of our theology, confessions, prayer book in their case. You know, we got to move into that way. Which is so interesting, right? Because the cell is you're coming here because of these traditions, you know, like you're coming here because we want the church calendar. We want that. But what that leads me to believe is there's a lot of people that they want they want that exterior, right? Like you want it to look high churchy or something. Uh, but you don't actually want the tradition that has brought that about. Yeah. And, and there's without, and like, I don't know the people's motives for, for all, you know, they say, I'm not going to speak for all of them, but there is, you know, we'll do that. Well, I mean, we'll, yeah. we'll do that later. <laughs> but like, before when I was going in, into it, you know, I used to be like, I really want to wear a collar. And then I found out how I didn't wear one, but I found out there incredibly uncomfortable when you're around them a lot more and like you get to see what you know they're they're uncomfortable but there's this there is this pageantry element um and and, you know there's this this idea of these the high church elements so i'll show you i know nobody will be able to see this this is terrible for like radio or podcasts and i'm not sure you guys will be able to see this even but this is called a priest's handbook Uh, it's a really famous book about all the things you're supposed to do during the service and it's got like actual what you do. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then there's another page where it walks you through the Eucharist and tells you what you should be doing at exactly wow. which moment. So those aren't gang signs when they're oh, throwing their hands like, up. No, these are the these are the signs of what you're supposed to do at wow. when if you don't do them right, 
you will get feedback. So the, the priest I served under, remember I said he was low church. When you, um, when you lift up to consecrate the, the main Eucharistic host, he, he would like barely lift up. He'd be like, eh, what's up? Because he's low church. He doesn't want to elevate. He doesn't want you know, sure. to make it seem like he's doing more than what he believed was actually happening. And he told me like you know, early on that he got criticized for that uh, at a parish, not the one we were at the time, but he got criticized at it early on in his career because he didn't raise it higher. Wow. Um, and so there's this, I think there's this appeal to ritual. Like I feel like I'm doing something. Yeah. And it kind of borders on works in some ways. If, if your heart is put that way, like I'm doing this now. So see me, see what I'm doing for you reward me in some way so so it's ritual but to to come back to my question can i believe whatever i want <laughs> in the episcopal church i'd say probably i mean like yeah. we think about it this way some of the highest catholic churches i can send you guys one that you would love uh in new york city for for example high high church i mean like singing chanting huge amount of incense all the vestments radically liberal hmm. Like when, when they're talking about the Trinity, I don't think you, they would actually believe it. You know, that it's just the tradition of what, what you say. Yeah. And the ACNA, they're going to be nailed down more. I mean, they're, they're going to be, I think what they're running into is, you know, what does it mean to be an Anglican? We have people here who have been Episcopalians our whole lives. They know what it's like. We have other people kind of like what you were describing who are coming into this tradition saying, I want to be united to this, like, church state christendom thing uh that has a great tradition i'm coming here for that let's use the 1662 book of common prayer get it right uh but then you got other people that are like i really like smells and bells i want to be in this atmosphere of holiness um and i don't really care too much about the other stuff yeah so i feel like i have a lot of questions and i'm trying to ask yeah. the right ones um well i'll ask i'll ask both both of the pastors here this question so i do think that this question of historically rootedness is very attractive to millennials and younger i do think that is a very attractive thing how would you guys answer to someone? Because I mean, right, we see this, I think we see this with some of the, the draw to Anglicanism. We see this with the ortho bros who are not very nice on the internet. Um, we see, you know, these, these, this attraction to these, um, right? It seems like whoever can claim the highest level of rootedness, regardless of how spurious some of those claims are, right? There, that's where. That's that's just a very that's a good selling point at this point for especially young young men. Um, what do you guys? How would you guys respond? You guys are both Presbyterian ministers. How would you talk about this? And so, Philip, why don't you start since you kind of you were you were in right? You were in yeah. part of you were already part of one of those communions. So part of what changed me through going through this was to come out. While we're getting to what when we came out of it was coming out more confessional uh, mm. in regards to the, the PCA uh, and reformed confessionalism. Um, but part of that was through observing a whole bunch of things, you know, that may be, you know, liturgically ancient or something like, you know, we joked about the slapper earlier or whatever, but if we're going to talk about being historically rooted, you cannot get more historically rooted than scripture itself. So mm, if something's yep. not in scripture, what gives you warrant to say it's historically rooted? I mean, you can you can say, oh, well, it's a tradition passed down from such and such bishop and such. And, I don't know that. I don't have a, in some cases, you don't even have somebody writing about it. Um, it's just right. something that's been handed down orally and then eventually it gets written down. But it's centuries later. So I, I would say, you know, Cal, that's what kind of Calvin's charge in this, you know, uh, letter to the king of France in the beginning of his institutes is that he fights back about the tradition that, you know, their claims to historicity as the reformation like are we upholding what the apostles teach He's like yeah we are because they believed in the scriptures yep. and we're just teaching the scriptures so yeah right. we're connected to them that that would be my answer yeah so the connection so this is what um i often find you even hear this right where you can have this like high church uh like atmosphere 
right? This, this like, uh, what I, I call it a kind of faux transcendence, right? So we're, we live in a time when a lot of people are like, they're trying to seek some kind of transcendence. And when you put a lot of, you know, the incense and a lot of the stained glass and a lot of these things, there is a feeling of transcendence. There's something to it, right? This is why I don't want to, I, I don't want to rule those things out as like things that might, you know, uh, you know, be an, a really interesting experience, maybe even a, a good experience, not necessarily right for the worship of God, but like some, like there's something to it, right? So to just rule it out would be silly. Um, but you see that you can have that and deny the God that exists, <laughs> you know? So like, so like, obviously that is not the issue, you know, that that's not the ultimate issue. It's a faux transcendence. The true, true transcendence is God himself and coming to know him. How do you do that? You do it through his son. How do we come to know his son? It's through the gospel and through his word. That's how he's made himself known. And so um, to, to go where you lose that part is to, you know, it's, it's to ultimately show that the whole project is, is absurd. Um, I think that uh, it is, uh, it, there's a lot of things to remember. I, I just recently read, um, I'm trying to remember the book. Um, it's uh, In Search of Ancient Roots. Uh, it's by, I can't remember the guy's name, but he's a, a professor at, at um, Covenant College not seminary. Uh, but it, it's all about the tagline is something like, you know, the evangelical identity crisis or something like that. Mm -hmm. And his argument through the book seems to be uh, basically like, you know, you can trace evangelical movements throughout the entire history of the church. And uh, when you talk about having some kind of like actually historically rooted faith, you can say that even within a very evangelical faith, um, that what you have really is pretty significant marketing, especially by modern uh, Catholics. Now, you know, I mean, Anglicans, like those, those who are maybe more high church to say, Hey, well, we are the church of the church fathers, right? Like that's, we, our connection goes back to the church fathers. Well, I mean, all of the reformers would have argued the same, right? We, yeah. we go back to the church fathers. That's why Calvin quotes them so often. It's why he, he, he uh, connects so much of what he does in the institutes to um, the fathers. Um, the, those who are, you know, reading the fathers today, those who are using the church fathers today in order to discuss how, you know, you should be Roman Catholic, you should be Eastern Orthodox, you should be Anglican, whatever it might be. They are the vast majority of the time reading Protestants who have gone and done the work to compile, translate, and, you know, uh, uh, bring, uh, the, the fathers to us in, in a modern time. Um, so like it's, it's just, it's not, uh, it is a marketing tactic. It's not actually true to say, Hey, you evangelicals, you, you know, Presbyterians, whatever it might be, your history only goes back so far. And especially that comes out when you think about it, particularly doctrinally, it's why I can read, I can say, you know, uh, you know, on the incarnation is without a doubt, one of the most impactful, uh, works, uh, Christian works that I've ever read. And I would recommend it to anybody right now. I'm reading through, um, I've, I've started, uh, working through just kind of devotionally. Um, I tried to do on, on the Lord's day. I tried to read through, um, some of Chrysostom's homilies. So I'm reading some of his homilies on Matthew. It's great. You know, I, I benefited from it greatly. Um, but again, I, I think that that's, that's kind of part of it, especially in a society that's falling apart. Um, but also I should add to we see this, right? Like, especially because there's high profile people sometimes that do this, right? They, they either uh, move to Roman Catholicism or in the case we're talking about Anglicanism, which is not the same, right? So I don't want to put these things in the, in, in the same light. Um, but uh, the, I, I don't know if this is true of Anglicanism. I'm just thinking of this book that I read uh, in, in Search of Ancient Roots. But he points out that the amount of people leaving Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy for evangelical traditions is far, it far surpasses those who go the other way. Um, and yet it looks like sometimes to us, like it, that's not true. Yeah. Well, you still run into the, the issue of, and actually this was a big kicker for us too. Um, when we left was church government, like the mm. Bible has a plan and an outline of how the church should be run. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and again, I had a I had a good bishop. I'm thankful for that. I've heard plenty of stories of, of of bad bishops. But what what ends up happening in the episcopal structure though is that you're still left with one person in charge. Yeah. 
uh, you know, a, a priest is pretty much the guy that runs the show, gal that runs the show at the church. Um, and then the bishop is where, you know, he's got a ton of control over. I mean, you have to ask the bishop's permission to do things in the church. And I'm, I'm like, I, I referenced the Episcopal Diocese of Albany that's conservative. Um, there was a great uh, priest there and he wanted to preach uh, expo expositionally. And so the, cause you have to usually have to preach from the lectionary son. Right. So the Bishop gave him his approval. So he was like, you know, I, I'd follow me be preaching through first Samuel. Uh, no other Episcopal church was doing that. Yeah. Um, but that's not what we saw like outlined in acts. That's not what we see when Paul's writing to Timothy on setting up churches. It doesn't seem like there's one person kind of running the show and they would argue well paul's the one running the show well, paul's giving guidance and, and mentor to the elders at that church mm, not the same thing paul also has a a special office that has now ceased um that'll be that might be the next that might be the next show because i keep saying <laughs> things like that and i always get questions um no i think this is this is really good we we do need to You've, you've given us a lot of your night. This has been really interesting. I do think when I think about one of the big things is, um, as, as listeners know, when I talked about early on, I was a member of a Lutheran church for a while. And as I watched um, that man engage with the liturgy, engage, and now it was a, it was a very low church Lutheran uh, church, as I've learned, having gone to higher Lutheran church and gone like, whoa, I thought I liked higher church. And then... Uh, <laughs> realize I was, I was freaked out. Um, you know, I watched him and it was this, I have such an, he is one, he's a very godly pastor, very godly minister who I have the utmost respect for. But two, it was this, this, he was doing this out of a true conviction. I have visited, um, even some, you know, some, whether they be reformed ish or Anglican of these kind of young people trying to do these things. And it is not, it is in, the experience is not even close to the same because it, it does feel like we are trying to, to make this happen. Um, you know, and it's this kind of interesting, this is just a great tweet. I believe even from an Anglican from a long time ago is that, you know, yeah, you know, I'm, I, you, you, the millennial looking for your historical roots, you know, leave the church, the evangelical church, your parents were a part of for your entire life you go to a PCA church, but then you realize that they have no connection to the church fathers. So you join the Anglican church, which at one point you finally realize that the true thing you have to do is join a Latin mass only, yeah, um, yeah. you know, Roman Catholic church that you have to drive an hour and a half for. And you're the one, you're the one who's, you know, working to be really historically rooted. Whereas your parents, you know, oh, they don't know anything about this. No, they actually were rooted. They were very rooted. And you're the one driving around and you know doing a fancier version of church shopping but yep. i do think that you know this, these historical questions i just think i think these are simplistic answers to what really happened in church history right that you know what yeah. church fathers believe this you know which which ones which ones right <laughs> yeah. that's always the question which ones when did this develop what we're doing um and so I think that's a good question. I think the other question for our listeners, um, I do enjoy, I enjoy written prayers. That's something I, you know, whether it be the Valley of Vision, I enjoy some of the divine hours kind of things. Tell our, tell our listeners, you've had way more experience though. Would you, would you recommend any, any, would you recommend the common book of prayer or would you recommend prayer books in general? You're a pastor. You talk to people about these kinds of things. Yeah. Uh, I recommend the value of vision to people. Um, Matthew Henry's book, um, how to pray is a great one. A simple way to pray. Yeah. It's great. Yeah, that's a great one. Um, I would recommend the, I don't see a problem with using the book of common prayer. I would recommend using the original 1662. Um, it was, you can't get a copy of really like Cranmer's original one anymore, but like it was the most still rooted towards, what was Protestant, you know, uh, Anglicanism. Mm. Um, that's why it's still officially the, the book of common prayer for the church of England. I mean, they may have used updated ones, but that's still the one you use. Um, 
so I think there's there's great prayers that we as Presbyterians can even like when you read some of the Eucharistic prayers um, or the catechism questions, even touching on like what are the sacraments? I mean, they they sound like they came out of the Westminster uh, Larger Catechism. I mean, there's nothing funky there. Yeah. Um, and so the I love uh, one of the Advent collects one of the prayers um, for Advent in the Book of Common Prayer is uh, about Holy Scripture and it talks about that you would uh, learn Mark read and inwardly digest the word of God and mm. it's just vivid and impactful and consuming and that's what I want when I approach scripture I want to have that desire towards it so yeah I think there's I think they're good um 79 and whatever is about to come out of the Episcopal church probably not <laughs> Wait, so and then let me ask so if you if a if a, someone listens to this they order they order one of the you know uh the I don't know what you said the 16 62. 16, 62 version. So what do they do? They just open up to the day and yes. they... Well, no. So there is a how-to guide, literally, and like how to use the Book of Common Prayer. It's in the front, but they do have set like morning and evening prayers. And so those are like in the beginning um, and they, they can be meant for private devotions. And it literally has instructions. Read this part, say a prayer, flip to this Psalm, which it will have a Psalter in it. Mm -hmm. read this psalm um so it has built in guidance on what to do the acna's prayer book they came out one with one in 2019 i don't know much about it but um i i believe j.i packer still may have had a hand in it i could mm -hmm. be wrong about that but j.i packer did have a lot of hands at hand in the development of acna mm -hmm. especially its catechism so i would probably trust that um I, i'm sure that's beneficial to somebody's faith well, yeah, there are so many things. There are so many directions we could take this oh, week, whether it be as as uh, banal as what Beth Moore was doing or the kind of awesome Wait, Anglicans. Oh, hold on. Hold on. Can I just explain? Because please, please, please do. I know every Baptist favorite pastime right now is to hate on Beth Moore. It is. But I think they're contractually obligated to. Yeah, I think it, it is. is. <laughs> I think it isn't. Pulpit, pulpit and pen definitely is. They, I they know. Have. Yep. <laughs> Um, but in, so one thing though, in, in slightly her defense, like I saw the thing from, I think about not pulpit and pen, but uh, reformation Charlotte posted about it. Um, and they were talking about how she's wearing the funky garments and she's serving communion. And so she was participating in her church. They would not let just somebody in plain clothes do what she's doing. She has to wear a cassock and the white thing is called the surplus. I mean, she's, you gotta wear that. Um, and they have different views on serving the communion. She didn't actually bless it. She didn't consecrate it. She's just helping the priest administer it. I know in the PCA, this is a touchy thing because mm -hmm. sometimes women are, you know, distributing the elements for worship. Sometimes we restrict it just to elders. Um, but that's kind of what was going on. So she got a lot of hate for that. Uh, but they did. But it is something. Out, but it wasn't weird. You're saying. But it's like, something a lay person could do. Yes. In an Anglican yeah. church. This yeah. is. This is not in, in what she was doing is not an ordained action. Right. We can put it that way. You, you so, still have to get licensed. Usually it's called in the Episcopal Church to do it, but it's not. It's not. So, so Southern Baptist friends, for all the flack Miss Moore may deserve, this one is just one, something. This is not her fault, at least. This is just all of Anglicanism, if you want to, <laughs> if, if you have a problem. You don't like it. You just but, don't like Anglicanism. But yeah, whether it be tomorrow, yeah. just don't <laughs> like Anglicans. <laughs> that's probably it. That's probably it. So yeah, like I said, there's a lot we could talk about. There's obviously the the great Anglicans, Jab Packer, J.C. Ryle. You know, even the interesting uh, Sydney Anglicans. Right? There's all these kinds of different folks. But we're gonna we're gonna call it here. I'm sure we'll return to this. And if folks want, we'd love to have uh, Pastor Philip back. This has been great. But so someday we're when we're looking back on this, uh, this brief, or maybe not brief, um, popularity of Anglicanism, the, the seeming rise of Anglicanism. So if the uh, new Calvinists had about a solid uh, 10 years of seemingly being on, on the upswing, uh, being the new, the new kids on the block that everyone liked in evangelicalism, would you put the, this new interest in Anglicanism at uh, over or under 10 years. Do you think this will last longer than 10 years or less? Less. Okay. Uh, and I, I think 
probably because of what I already mentioned earlier. It are it seems like there's cracks in the ACNA structure over over women priests still over wokeism over human sexuality i mean we feel it in our own denomination coming in at a time like that is, is probably just coming into a structure that's already showing some cracks i'm not saying they're gonna break but i don't see then how it's gonna have something some longevity like mm. the young restless reform movement had piggybacking off of baptists and renewed interest in presbyterians i I don't see how that's going to be a 10-year thing. Thank you, Pastor Philip Ryan, for joining us tonight on Restless. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Right now, if you join our Patreon at the purely Presbyterian level, you can hear about the stuff we talked about in the show after the interview in a show format directly stolen from Renewing Your Mind. I think you'll love it. Again, at Patreon every week, we will have new content for all levels. So log in, especially next week. We have something special coming.